Hey, good morning, Stonebridge Bible Church. How are we doing this morning? Well, I'm glad to hear. Take that Bible. Turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. As Justin said, we're beginning a new series that I believe will take us roughly two months as we explore one of the more well-known stories in the Old Testament. I want to read the entirety of Jonah chapter 1 for us, and then we will dive in. Before I read, if you're here for the first time, I'd love to meet you uh, before you leave today. My name is Johnny Artavanis, and I'll go stand at the door before, uh, right after my message. I'd love to at least shake your hand. I'm glad you're here and would love to meet you face to face. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Then the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw cargo, which was in the ship, into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish each man said to his, his mate, come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea has become increasingly stormy. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, for they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Would you pray with me? God, we're so thankful for your word. Lord, we're thankful to really embark on a new study. And as we seek to extrapolate the great truths of scripture, would you, God, make them, uh, make our own hearts receptive to the truth within your word. Lord, we know that you are a God who has revealed yourself, and we're so grateful for that. Lord, I pray just for our, our church today, Lord, some may be grieving, some may be in a period of suffering and trial, would you be with them, God? Lord, I pray for those who are looking for work, would you help them to find opportunities to provide for their family? I pray for some who have unsaved family and friends, would you help them to be an agent 
in order that they might communicate the message of the gospel. Lord, we pray even just for our church that you would make us not only love each other and be unified in spirit, but that you would give us a burden for others, for the lost, for the nations. God, I pray for someone who might be here this morning that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior. Would you bring them to saving faith in Christ Jesus? Would you bless this study? Because unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers build in vain. And so God, we commit our study to you. Would you be honored? Pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Question for you, Stonebridge Bible Church. Have you ever asked the question, what is God really like? We've been looking at that question really for our summer series in the Psalms, but the question persists, what is God like? Does he begrudgingly bestow mercy on those who are in need? Is he reluctant to extend his kindness? Is he aloof or indifferent? Is he only saving a certain type of individual? To answer those questions, we can really only know the answer if God answers the question himself. Meaning that if we want to know what God is like, God must reveal himself to us. And as we begin our exposition in the book of Jonah, we come to a little book that reveals the great heart of God. A God who is a just judge, but a God who is dripping with compassion, overflowing with mercy. Jonah is a story you're likely familiar with to a degree, but it possesses many unfamiliar elements. And as is often the case, the deepest truths are mined from the deepest study. And we're going to see that in this book, there's a lot more than a runaway prophet. We're going to see who God reveals himself to be. Jonah is in a section of your Bibles known as the prophetic literature. It's in the prophet section. There are 16 prophetic books, four which are major prophets, 12 which are minor, ending in Malachi and including Jonah. The minor prophets are a section of your book that aren't minor because of their significant significance, but because of their size. Jonah is a book that is only 48 verses long. There's only five words in Hebrew of actual preaching. So it's in this section known as the minor prophets, but it has a major truth to teach us. Jonah is also a historical book. It's not fiction. It's not an allegory. Jesus refers to Jonah as history in Matthew 12, in Matthew 16, and in Luke 11. The Hebrew narrative and the Hebrew structure point to the reality that this is a historical account. Yet many people today, many Christian colleges, many Christian churches, want to discredit this story as history and say that it's just a mere allegory because of their difficulty in believing that a great fish could actually swallow a man and then three days later spit him up on dry land. But the Christian has no problem believing in a miracle in Jonah because our entire faith rests upon the miracle of the resurrection. We are a people who serve a God of impossibilities. And so when we come to Jonah, we see no problem in believing the truth as plainly revealed. There's a lot of various themes that you could talk about, but there's just a couple that we will notice as we begin this study. If you had to put a subtitle for this book, It's really less on Jonah and more about Jonah's God. I've entitled our series, The Rebellious Prophet and the Heart of God, or you'd be able to write in your Bibles above the book of Jonah, God, comma, the ultimate evangelist, 
or God's profound heart of mercy. God is indeed a just judge, but it says in Ezekiel 33, 11, that he does not delight in the punishment of the wicked. You know that God always punishes sin. We've talked about that. Every single sin will be accounted for on judgment day. There is no sin that escapes the all-consuming fire and omniscient mind of God. And he will punish every sin. But do you want to know what brings the heart of God joy? It's not the punishment of the wicked. He delights in saving sinners. And in this short story, there is the greatest evangelistic event recorded in human history. There's a lot more to this story than a great fish. This is a story about a great God who has a heart of mercy. I've told you before I did this interview with this other pastor's kid that had deconstructed and it was being moderated by really someone behind the camera. And he would say something, not really a question, and we were both kind of prompted to respond to what he said, meaning the Bible is an accurate source of sexuality. And he would say something and then I would say the Bible. And then someone would say, uh, God is a God of love. And he responded. And I remember being in this interview and he said, well, it depends on the God of which testament you're talking about. And I said, what are you talking about? Like, explain that to me, bro. His name was also Johnny, but he spelled it like an H, you know, so I'll forgive him later. But he said, uh, the God, I said, the guy, I said, which testament are you talking about? And he said, well, let me explain. The God of the Old Testament is a wrathful judge. He's angry. He's just ready to punish people. And the God of the New Testament is a God of compassion and kindness and mercy. God of the old, angry. God of the new, patient and kind. You know, whoever thinks that way has never studied the book of Jonah. God delights in rescuing sinners. Furthermore, one of the truths that this book will show us is that at times we think someone must be like us in order for them to be an applicant for the mercy of God. But this book is going to show us that God's heart is not like our heart. He goes after the sick. We're gonna, if I had to ask you, hey, picture a person in your mind that is ripe for the gospel. Are you thinking of someone that looks like you? Clean cut, almost Christian by their demeanor and dress, but just without Christ. God's gonna show us in his word through the book of Jonah that he goes after the sick, not people with minor headaches, people that are the worst of the worst, and he showers them with mercy. He warns them to repent. I need to talk about Israel's spiritual climate during the time of this book in order for us to really understand it in order to understand the book of Jonah or any book of scripture for that matter, we must not adapt it to meet our modern context. We go back to see what it meant then because what God's word meant then is what it means now. God's word is not a dynamic document. It's not subject to change. We don't innovate the Bible. You know, whenever you see trends ministerial that, hey, we're trying to do this, you know, I see a lot that people will say things like, if the church doesn't change their strategy, they're gonna lose the next generation. Well, in many ways, the reason we're losing the next generation is because we're always trying to meet modern strategy. The way we study the Bible is the same way they've been studying the Bible for thousands of years. We go back and understand what it meant then because what God's word meant then is what it means now. 
Now, in the Old Testament, the way that God revealed himself was through prophets. They were nearest to the plan and purposes of God. They relayed to the people everything that God was saying and he was going to do. A prophet was someone who didn't just know about God. They were someone who was intimate with his purposes. They had an awareness of his plan. And they also experienced and employed his power. In the book of Kings, God had used his prophets to herald his message and the truth to his people, Israel. He had raised up two great prophets in particular in Kings, the first of which was Elijah. We've talked about Elijah a little bit, but Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, it says in James 5, and he prayed and the sky turned to brass for three and a half years. There were 851 prophets gathered at Mount Carmel and only one of them stood for Yahweh. His name was Elijah. He says, Yahweh is the only true God. And he calls down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. And then he commissions them to slay and slaughter the false prophets of Baal. He was a mighty man indeed. He would stand shoulder to shoulder with Jesus Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration. At the conclusion of his ministry, prior to being taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire, his disciple comes to him and says, Elijah, his name was Elisha. He asks Elijah, give me a double portion of the spirit of God. I wanna be used by God in powerful ways. And so would you ask that God's spirit and God's blessing would be upon my life, not because I wanna be in the spotlight, but because I want to be useful for the God who loves me and has set me apart for his purposes. And so Elijah passes the torch, or literally speaking, places his cloak on Elisha. And Elisha receives a double portion of the spirit of God. He raises children from the dead. He parts the Jordan. He heals the leper Naaman. When he is mocked for his baldness, two female bears come out and maul 42 young men. I used to love that story when I was a kid. God, please let anybody who disrespect me just be mauled. But Elisha, like Elijah, would soon go the way of all the earth. And it's at a time of profound spiritual darkness. In 2 Kings 13, Elisha dies. And by the time we are in 2 Kings 14, we are now in the 8th century BC. And King Jeroboam II is on the throne and although it was a time of material prosperity, it was a time of unparalleled spiritual apostasy. It was a time of darkness. And during the reign of King Jeroboam II, you see a common description you see over and over and over and over again about the kings of Israel. You know what it is? They did what was what? Evil in the sight of God. This is all too common. There were some prophets who prophesied at the same time during King Jeroboam II's reign. Their names were Hosea and Amos. They were prophets of doom and judgment. God had showered the people with love and mercy and blessing, and the people of God continually trampled on God's grace. The opening words of Hosea read, the Lord says to Hosea, Go take for yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. Over and over again throughout the book of Hosea, the word whoredom is used to describe the people's lack of faithfulness to God. 
8th century BC, God was like a loving groom who protects and provides for his bride. And over and over and over and over and over again, the people of God are like an unfaithful wife who just can't wake up to wait to wake up in the morning and find alternative lovers. God is a loyal, loyal groom. And even when his people are fickle and faithless, he is loyal to them. Amongst the few that had remained faithful to God, there was this burning question in the midst of a time of spiritual darkness and moral declension. Who will God raise up at such a time as this? We understand this type of thinking, don't we? We look at the world around us. We see the darkness that is all pervasive. We look at some of the heroes of our faith that have gone to be with the Lord in the last few years. And you sometimes wonder, who's going to stand in the gap? Like Elijah. Who's going to profess and proclaim God's message to God's people? 2 Kings 14, 24, it says, King Jeroboam II did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. No coincidences in your Bible. Elijah dies. Elisha dies. King Jeroboam II did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 2 Kings 14, 24. 2 Kings 14, 25. Then there came a report that the boundaries of Israel were restored to their Solomonic borders to the north and to the south. And then it says, just as Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet of Gethhefer, had prophesied. A star emerges on the scene. Someone is coming. Someone is next. Another prophet is here. Could this be the next Elijah? He's gone. He's been taken up to glory in a chariot. And now in this time of darkness, the people of God are wondering, who is going to be an agent of light in a time of pollution? And then it says that the borders of Israel were returned to their Solomonic glory. Can I ask you a question? How important do you think the land of Israel is to the people of Israel? Turn on the news. This was no small deal. And it said the people remembered his preaching. This was the litmus test for any prophet. It says in Deuteronomy that you can know if they're actually for God as if their prophecies come true. And so the people of God begin to look around and they say, Jonah, the young guy, he's up next. He's a leader. He's an influencer. He's near to the purposes and plan of God. We can trust him. Jonah was likely a member of the community that we see consistently in the beginning of 2 Kings, known as the school of the prophets. Over and over again, you see this phrase, the school of the prophets. And these were young men that Elijah and Elisha had drawn to themselves to pour their life into. They would have been invested in. They would have grown up with a sense of camaraderie with other people that were near to God, that longed to know him, that longed to proclaim his word, that were symbols of purity in a time of impurity. What Timothy was to Paul, those who were in the school of the prophets were to Elijah and Elisha. And although there's no way to know for certain, it's likely that Jonah would have been a part of this special community. So from obscurity, God calls this man from just a few miles north of Lazarus, or from Nazareth, not Lazarus. Different guy, not a place. <laughs> I wanna look at two things with you today. First, God's call in verses one and two, and then Jonah's rebellion in verse three. Let's read one and two together one more time. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, 
the great city and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. It says the word of the Lord came and said arise. If you have the NIV, I think the word arise is taken out. But in Hebrew, this is an important word because God's not coming to Jonah and saying, hey, Jonah, listen, can you send me your speaking schedule? If it ever works out for you to drop on by Nineveh, pay him a visit. No, he's arresting Jonah in the middle of what he's doing, saying, stop what you're doing. I have a new mission for you. It's not your mission whether or not you choose to accept. This is the God of angel armies we looked at. And he's saying, go to Nineveh. It says, the word of the Lord came. This is an emphatic up. This phrase, the word of the Lord, is used a hundred times in the prophetic section of your Bible. And it always refers to one thing, God grabbing the face of his messenger with clear, unmistakable clarity and telling them to do exactly something that is on his heart. In Malachi 1, it says, the oracle of the word of the Lord came to Israel through Malachi. The word for oracle is the Hebrew word Massah, and it means something. It means burden. It means heavy. Because to communicate God's message to God's people was no trivial or featheristic thing. It was a burden. The people, the prophets who were God's messengers were to feel the same burden to communicate the message as God had. It was a great responsibility. So God's call to Jonah is clear and compelling. It grips him and it grabs him and tells him to go to Nineveh, the great city. This is the hallmark of a prophet's commission. Stark simplicity. Go to Nineveh and preach. You can't get any more clear than that. No commentaries are needed for consultation. No academic assisting. No abundance of counselors on this one. That's really, really one of the main things that we see today. The problem that many people have with the Bible is not things that are hard to understand. It's the things that are so plain and simple in Scripture that they just want to, want to disobey. And here's what we see with Jonah. It's not an unclear call. It's the word of the Lord that comes to him. Why? To be. It says, for their wickedness has come up before me. Let's talk about Nineveh for a moment. The city is located across the Tigris River, and it's really across from the modern-day city of Mosul in Iraq, about 250 miles north of Baghdad. And it's first mentioned in Genesis 10.8 as the city established by the great-grandson of Noah named Nimrod. And for hundreds of years, from the 14th century to the 7th century BC, this was the most powerful empire on earth. Some would say not even the glory of Rome rivaled the power and dominance and ruthlessness of the Assyrians. Nineveh was not the capital city until the reign of Sennacherib in 704 BC, but it was the chief city until the destruction of the empire at the hands of the Babylonians and Medes in August of the year 612 BC. The city itself was stunning. And sometimes we think back about people that lived 3,000 know, 3, years ago and we go, nah, they must not have been bright. No, this was no joke of a city. The inner wall of the city was eight miles in circumference. The wall itself, 100 feet high. 
on the wall. It was so wide that three chariots could run abreast. That's how thick the wall is. There was 1,200 towers where there was constant guard. The king had a palace, and his palace's name was simple, a palace with no rival. Outside of the king's bedroom was a 46-acre lot of land, and it was full of his chariots and his militia, ready to dominate anyone that disrespected him. At the king's palace, there were lions of bronze and bulls of white marble. But far more than the palace being known for its walls, its gardens, and its towers, the city was known for its brutality. The Assyrians would conquer distant kings, and they would strip them naked, put a leash around them like a dog, march them back to Nineveh, and make them live in a kennel the rest of their days. They would then take the king's daughters and turn them into concubines. They were ruthless. They were cruel. The great king Ashurbanipal, the grandson of Sennacherib, was said to tear off the lips and hands of his victims. They were the perfectionists of live dismemberment. And right before the final blow, they would cut off every limb of their victims only to leave a hand so that right before they killed them, they would shake it and mock them. They were said to burn children alive, torture adults by skinning them. Here is Asher Banipal's journal. It's in the British Museum today. And I read this, not to be crass, but you need to know what Jonah knew, right? If you're gonna understand what was on his heart, and if you're gonna understand God's heart, you need to know the depths of Ninevite sin. Here's Asher Banipal's journal. I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me. I draped their skins over the pile of corpses. Some I spread out within the pile, some I erected on stakes upon the pile. I flayed many right through and draped their skins over the walls. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like red wool. I cut off the heads of their fighters. I built towers with their, their severed heads. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. I gouged out their eyes. Here's Jewish writer Hayam Lewis. The Assyrians were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. For Jonah, Nineveh then was no ordinary city. It carried doom-laden, tragic memories. It stood as a symbol of evil incarnate. They killed people, burned people alive, severed their heads, parade their heads around the city. But not only were they ruthlessly cruel, they were a city full of idolatry. They worshiped the false gods of Nabu, Asher, and Adad. They worshiped Ishtar, a goddess of love and war. Nineveh was the apex of wickedness in the known world. And their wickedness has come up before God. God is an omniscient God. He knows all of the wickedness in the entire universe. And it says that Nineveh, in unique fashion, their wickedness was like a foul stench and the proverbial nostril of God. They couldn't take it anymore. But here's God's heart. Instead of sending two angels like he did to Sodom and Gomorrah to wipe out the entire city, he sends one prophet to preach against it. How does Jonah respond? Is he delighted to spread God's word to the lost? No, as we will see, God says, go. And Jonah says, no. Look at Jonah's rebellion secondly here in verse three. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is on the run. 
he disobeys God's command and he flees from his calling. It says he goes to Joppa. Joppa is near the modern day city of Tel Aviv, but at the time it was under the rule of the Philistines. Jonah is going to a port specifically knowing that he will not see any of the other people of God. He's not gonna be asked because his conscience is already screaming at him. No one that knows him is gonna ask, where are you going? Because Jonah at this point is running from God and when you run from God, you have to do this to your conscience. Quiet, quiet. And in verse three, there's this hustle and bustle of verbs to try to show how hard and how fast Jonah is trying to run from the inescapable God. How far away is Tarshish? Well, main thing to understand here, it's the other end of the known world. In 2 Chronicles 9.21, it says that a, a round trip to Tarshish required three years. Nineveh was 500 miles west, but likely Tarshish is off the coast of modern-day Spain, which would be 2,000 miles east. He's trying to get as far away from God as possible, and it says in verse 3 that he paid the fare. I wonder if Jonah's rationalization when he comes to the boat that's available for him right when he gets there, is maybe it's not God's will after all. There's a boat waiting for me. Look at Providence, right on time. Listen, I remember my dad teaching me this very book when I was a kid, and he always used to say, Johnny, anytime you're running from God, Satan will always have a boat for you leaving right on time. But Jonah has to pay the fare. Unbelief always finds what it seeks. And with a burning conscience, with anxiety in his heart, even a level of guilt, Jonah runs from God. The great preacher Barnhouse once said, when you run away from the Lord, you never get to where you are going, and you always pay your own fare. On the other hand, when you go the Lord's way, you always get to where you are going, and he pays the fare. And although... Jonah's geographic orientation is to go in this opposite direction east. His spiritual orientation is down. There's an emphatic use of language here in Hebrew. Look at verse three. It says, so he went down to Joppa. And then it says, he paid the fare and went down to go with them. Then he's going to go down into the belly of the ship. Then he's going to go down into the ocean. Then he's going to go down into the bellies or the fish's stomach, I keep on saying that, the belly's whale. It's a new term, you'll catch on later. He's going down, because when you run from God, God's call is always, as it comes to Jonah, arise and go. And when he rejects God and runs from God, he goes down to Joppa, down to the port, down into the ship, down into the ocean, and down into the fish's stomach. He's running from God. And then it says, look at, Twice in verse three, it says, from the presence of the Lord. 3b, from the presence of the Lord. Verse 10, from the presence of the Lord. Jonah would have known Psalm 139, the passage that we looked at a few weeks ago, that God is everywhere. David was the one who said, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I... Settle on the far side of the sea, even there you are. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, you're there. If I am in the dark, you're there. If I'm in the light, you're there. 
You are an inescapable God. But here, Jonah flees. And it says from the presence of the God, but the more accurate rendering of it would be from the face of God. We were made to rush into God's presence. But when Adam sinned, it says that he hid himself from the face of God. When Cain killed Abel, it says he went out from the face of God. And when Jonah disregards God's calling and disobeys God's command, it says that he is running from the face of God. God's presence is the greatest comfort to those who walk with him, but it's an itchy garment that you long to rid yourself of if you're running from him. Disobedience, watch this, always prompts further flight from God. When you're walking in disobedience, you just want to get as far away from God as possible. Compromise is the father of further compromise. Little things become big things. And before you know it, you're on a ship to Tarshish. Can I ask you this morning, are any of you running from God? Jonah was running from God. Ironically, Jonah is the son of Amittai, which means faithfulness. And here the son of faithfulness is faithless as he refuses to go proclaim the word of God to a heathen people. So instead, you know what he does? He goes to a heathen city at a heathen port, boards a boat with heathen sailors to go to another heathen city. This trained man who had seen prophecies fulfilled in his own lifetime shows us an important lesson. And I think it's a lesson that some of you even need to hear today. Especially for people that have come here and this is maybe the place that are gonna settle down. Here's what Jonah shows us. No former obedience, no former usefulness for Christ, no former experience of God's power can ever substitute for present obedience and submission to the word of God. It's not those who start well. It's those who what? Finish well. Jonah could have looked at his resume and said, you know what? I've done my time. He might have even said, ministry has been difficult for me in the past. I'm gonna hang it up. I'm just gonna be a child of God, but I'm not gonna be a servant of God. But former obedience and former usefulness never substitutes for present submission and obedience to the word of God. We can be like Jonah in many ways. Ironically, we read his story and we're hard on him, but many of us are like Jonah. And the question is, how often do we run from the will of God? Well, every time you refuse to obey, even God speaking to you through his word and through your conscience, you get on a ship to Tarshish and you run from him. Why is Jonah running? Why is Jonah running from God? We're gonna see this over the next few weeks, but I think there's a few main reasons. One, it, it could have been very realistically the danger of the city he was called to go to. There was an element of danger. He could have said something like, if I go there, maybe they'll skin me alive. 
There's already a heap of carcasses. I'll just be thrown on top of them as the prophet of Yahweh, as they dismember me and mock me. Where's your God now, Jonah? So it could have been that. Secondly, I think Jonah knew something else. It had already been prophesied that because of the people of God's continued rejection and rebellion against God, God was going to raise up another nation that would crush them. This is God's promise to his people. If you obey me, I will bless you. But if you continue to play the harlot with me, I am going to raise up another nation to punish you and ultimately to restore you to myself. And here's the reality. The people of God knew that it was the Assyrian empire that were likely going to be the instruments of God's wrath. And so Jonah is thinking, okay, God, Riddle me this. You want me to go to Assyria to save a pagan nation in order to preserve the pagan nation so that in 20 years from now, they would crush and stamp out your people? That makes no sense to me, God. Third, I think Jonah thought, like many of us do today, wait a second. God's sovereign if it's really in his plan, he'll send someone else. Yeah, oh yeah, Hosea's insane, God. Send him. Amos is a madman. He likes doom and gloom. Send Amos. He's already fire and brimstone. He's your guy. I'm not gifted evangelistically. I'm an introvert. And if you're sovereign, God, you're gonna do what you do. Yours be the glory. In fact, God, I have an idea for you. Here am I, don't send me, send Hosea. The irony is, how different are we? You understand that if you're living on planet earth right now, which, okay, you're, you're all here. Okay, if you're living here and God has saved you, you are left here for one reason. Only one. Well, it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The way you glorify God is by obeying him. And the way that God has charged and commissioned your life is to go make disciples of every single nation. And Jonah is using the sovereignty of God potentially as a catalyst to his passivity, not as the confidence and the grounds upon which he obeys God. God's sovereignty and salvation is never our excuse for a lackadaisical pursuit of the lost. It is the impetus by which we know God is going to save sinners and he uses broken human instruments to accomplish his perfect will. Do you know that God has called you to proclaim the truth to your neighbors? You might say, how do I know that I'm the one who is supposed to proclaim the truth to the lost people around me. I know, because they're the lost people around you and not around me. How do you know if you're God's ambassador to your neighbor? Because you're, they're your neighbors. But Jonah rejects his calling and says, send someone else. I think there's another reason why Jonah ran and he actually tells us explicitly. Michelle, will you put up Jeremiah 18 for a moment? Here's a passage Jonah would have known well. It says, at one moment, 
I may speak, this is God speaking, concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Jonah is a reputation preserver. He's going, okay, God, you want me to go to Nineveh and tell him in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. But I know that you like when you for, like pronounce warning and people turn from their sin, you save them. That's gonna make me look like an absolute fool when I say 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then on day 41, you're gonna show them mercy. But then we see exactly why Jonah is mad and why he runs. Look at chapter four, and we'll get here in maybe six weeks. Because the way we go is slow. Okay, Jonah 4.1. It greatly displeased Jonah. What, first of all, what's he displeased by? He's sitting on a hill watching Nineveh saying, do it, God. Pour out your wrath. Do it. Do it. Do it. Destroy them. But it doesn't happen. And it became greatly displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry for two. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. Why? For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents from calamity. Jonah cannot stand the thought of God showing mercy on wicked sinners like the Ninevites. Jonah would rather be damned, literally, then see God bless and forgive his enemies. Jonah, you know, honestly, we're all professionals at rationalizing disobedience. Jonah probably went, <laughs> they probably aren't going to be interested anyway. I mean, look at them. They're ruthless and cruel. And he begins to justify his rebellion. We do the same thing. If I, if I, if I asked you, hey, give me, Picture someone ripe for the gospel. We think of someone that looks like us, talks like us, and is essentially us outside of Jesus Christ. They wear black jeans, a blue shirt. You know, I think this is blue, I'm colorblind. They look like us, talk like us, they're just almost Christian, but they're not a believer. We don't think of the person with multiple lip rings, with the pride shirt on, with pronouns in their bio, tattoos on their face and neck and think, oh, that's who, who God wants to show mercy to. You're in a clean-cut environment, a bastion of conservatism in many ways. And we are tempted to think God is apt to save people with political alliance because they're closer to his mercy than someone that's spearheading the gay pride parade. And God is going to show Jonah, you have missed who I am altogether. 
And Jonah is looking at God saying, I knew it. You're so merciful. Classic God pouring out mercy and compassion and loving kindness on the worst of the worst. And far from this producing a sense of worship and awe and gratitude that Jonah once had seen himself in similar light as that of Sennacherib, the king of brutality, he said, why can't you just continue to shower your mercy on people who deserve it like me? Jonah has God all wrong. And at times, dear church, so do we. Look at Jonah 4.11. I think the only book in the Bible that closes with a question. You can check me on that. This is God speaking. It says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals. We take those who don't know their right from their left to be children. And God is saying, I have a profound heart of compassion for, for young children. And not only that, for their animals. Sometimes, you know, before I, I came here, I think this is month three for me here today. Um, I was traveling a lot. I'd be in an airport. You know, even as I was studying this, I just go, man, I've seen hundreds of babies on planes. Sometimes people go, oh, I love the airport. People watch. Have you ever just looked at a baby in a stroller and went, where will they spend eternity? What family are they going to grow up in? God has a heart of mercy for those who do not yet know the difference between their right from their left. Who's going to proclaim Christ to their mommy and daddy? What school will they go to? If it's not me, then who? God has a heart of overflowing mercy the insensitivity of Jonah is remarkable, isn't it? But in many ways, we're no different. We come into contact with people that are gonna really endure the same fate of the Ninevites every single day in our neighborhoods, our communities, the YMCA. I was talking to a guy the other day in the gym, retired firefighter. Um started just talking to him about the Lord. He just said, well, we all believe in a higher power, amen? Trying to get out of the conversation, you know, fist bump me. I said, no. No, there's one God, Alan. And I just went, man, this guy, Alan, who I, 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 I fist bump him every day. It's part of the like 430 crew. It's a great team. He's about as strong as me, but big guy. I'm sure he's taking something, but. <laughs> I just go, man, where is he gonna spend eternity? You, you run from God's will in the same way because you've been given as just a clear of a call as Jonah has. Go make disciples. You know, even 
part of the reason I wanted to teach through Jonah first was Colin and I had been talking about just even what we were going to do with missions. If you're new here, we're like an overgrown baby church. We have membership coming and missions coming, but the reality is 98% of the money in America that's given to the church in America stays here in America. But God has a heart for the nations, and I hope we become a hub that sends. And so here is Jonah. It says that in verse 3, Jonah rose to flee, and then in Hebrew, I don't know if you see it in verse 4, it might say in your Bibles, then the Lord, or but the Lord. Jonah must have been filled with anxiety. His conscience is pounding. He buys a one-way ticket from the face of God. He's retired. I'm hanging up the cleats. It's all over God. The Bible is full of wonderful but God. And that's what we see in verse 4, because God is going to restore his prophet. And even against the backdrop of his own disobedience, he's going to use him to proclaim the gospel, the truth of who God is to the Ninevites. We sang this morning, Jason led us, by grace we are redeemed, and by grace we are, anybody know? Restored. God is not just the captain of a ship headed to Tarshish. He's the captain of the universe. And he is going to use even this rebellious prophet to be a part of the greatest recorded evangelistic event in the history of the world. Are you running from God this morning? Well, I pray that you fall down and you cast yourself upon his mercy. God's a good God. And aren't you thankful for his word? Let me pray. God, we love you. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the truth of scripture. Lord, would you use this study to teach us something about the heart of God? Lord, um, I pray, God, that you would use our church, not just that equips and is internally focused, but externally has a heart for those who don't know you. Lord, I'm thinking of the people and even the Muslim world, there's 1.8 billion Muslims. What are we doing there? Lord, I'm thinking of the Mormon church. Lord, so close, but so far from the truth. We believe in the same thing and it couldn't be any different in reality. Lord, I, I just pray, Lord, that you would burden our hearts. Lord, would you help us to understand that you've also come to us with compelling clarity and says, thus says the word of the Lord to every Christian in here, saying, you are my ambassadors and shall be my witnesses. Lord, give us a heart that breaks for what breaks yours and help us not to be silently passive but actively obedient as we, as a church, as individuals, create a culture that wants to bring the heart of God joy by rescuing sinners, of which we get to be your chosen instruments. We love you, God, and I'm so grateful you love us. We pray this in your name, and all God's people said, amen.